You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Actually recording on a Friday. Yeah, but not in our studio. No. So many people in the office. I think it's probably quieter here in your office. Yeah, so <clears throat> apologize for the sound quality. Um, big uh, legislation passed yesterday. Yes. The House of Commons received royal assent. Yes. Uh, this is Bill C-5. So Bill C-5, which changes the mandatory minimum scheme. Or lots of things. Certain offenses. Lots of offenses. And I thought we should talk about this, even though it's not, it doesn't change mandatory minimums for any driving offenses, um, which, of course, many of the existing mandatory minimums were uh, brought in by liberal governments or were strengthened by liberal governments or made uh, CSOs were made unavailable by liberal governments. More were conservative governments. The Harper's conservatives took away um, a lot of discretion from courts when it came to sentencing. Yeah. But um, yes, Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, had the opportunity to correct that, and that was one of the things that they originally campaigned on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, everybody wants it done in a day, and the liberals always say the NDP are just uh, liberals in a hurry. Well, you know, it looks like they've finally done most of it. So what are your thoughts on it, Kyla? Well, um, I'm sad. I'm disappointed because there was an amendment uh, to the bill that was proposed in the Senate by Senator Kim Pate, and we've talked about her on the podcast before. Uh, she was the person who had originally put in uh, the Senate bill to deal with um, mandatory minimums by providing essentially a, a safety valve where judges would not have to, it was, I think, S-221 in the previous parliament, um, and the, the judges would not have to impose a mandatory minimum if it would be contrary to the interests of justice to do so or in exceptional circumstances. And... I thought that was a great idea. And she tried to uh, get an amendment made to uh, Bill uh, C-5 to include that same safety valve provision, which would apply to um, all mandatory minimums, um, which would then, of course, apply to driving offenses. But uh, that was voted down by the Senate. And... The bill was passed by the Senate and went back to the House of Commons, who passed it, and it's been given royal assent. So it's a good start, but I'm also disappointed because I think that this decision, and I think that the the decision to pass this, is going to allow the federal liberal government to say, well, we did our thing. We did get rid of many of the mandatory minimums. We've done enough. We don't need to worry about the other mandatory minimums that create injustice in the criminal code because we've eliminated the vast majority of them, the ones that y'all complained about. But I think that this is an actual opportunity in some respects. So you think that this is just a closed door now. But imagine, you know, you have to imagine the right person, I suppose. But imagine, a you know, um, indigenous 
person who's never been in trouble before, who has the um, history of trauma that uh, you know is flowing through their their life and their their experiences, and they're not in trouble and they get an impaired, where they provide a sample that's one ten, mm-hmm. um, and um, you're looking at a criminal record that's going to follow them for the rest of their life. It's going to be a hindrance and 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 it's a life sentence right it's a life sentence because it's a criminal conviction it's on your driving record for forever even if you get a pardon yeah um you know i think under those circumstances that you can make the argument that the mandatory minimum can't apply because it's cruel and unusual in those particular circumstances and i think it could be struck down and i think the fact that the parliament recognized that mandatory minimums are so problematic in a diverse society and diverse culture and that with the diverse aspects of each different case, um, that it could be, it could be struck down. I, I, I still think that there's room for it to be, um, not, not struck down, uh, maybe that too, but certainly room for it to be found, uh, unconstitutional in the particular circumstance. Yes, absolutely. Like, of course, there's the opportunity for government's laws to be struck down and found unconstitutional, but there has never been a a successful constitutional challenge to the mandatory minimum penalties for impaired driving offenses. And the closest approach that we could have taken to that was Sharma, and Sharma was unsuccessful at the Supreme Court of Canada. I, I just think the right fact pattern would have to be there, and it's something that people didn't even think about. 20 years ago because it's been argued yes it has been argued but i think the right fact pattern would still allow for it to to happen i guess the um you know people who work in the in the crown prosecutor's office and judges sort of assume that you're not going to end up um even having a trial if you've got those circumstances and and so there's sort of an assumption that goes against it um in in those sympathetic circumstances in british columbia at least you probably would end up with some sort of resolution where you wouldn't end up with a conviction. But that's, you know, very different in Northern Ontario, for example. I still think that it could happen with the right circumstances, but it is unfortunate because it's the one-size-fits-all shoe. Um, when the real issue here is, I mean, what's the purpose of a justice system, right? You can't change the fact that it happened. Uh, the justice system is trying to discourage people. That's general deterrence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after that, you're trying to keep the person from doing it again, which is specific deterrence. That's the purpose of the justice system. And handing out criminal records to people in those circumstances where, I mean, as you and I know, good-hearted people are deterred usually by the arrest. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it's usually in those circumstances, it's a one-off. And we've had lots and lots and lots and lots of clients in those circumstances. Um, you know, it's it's... Frustrating to be sure to saddle somebody with a criminal record uh, in those cases where you can see that that's how it's played out, particularly when you think about their personal background. Speaking of arrests, interesting case out of the Alberta Court of Appeal uh, recently, beginning of this month. And uh, this is the case of uh, Rex and Veen. I'm never going to get used to saying Rex. Um, 
Say the king? Is that easier? I don't know. Ah, yeah. Anyway, um, so this is a person who was alleged to have refused to comply uh, with a breath sample demand. And as a result of that refusal, was arrested without warrant and then um, taken back to the police station. The So refused roadside. I believe so. Let me just double check. Um, yeah, it doesn't say what type of... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was trying to blow and it didn't work. So refused, mm. alleged refusal roadside. Arrested without a warrant, handcuffed, put in the back of the police vehicle, offered a lawyer, taken to the police station, given the chance to call a lawyer and use the washroom, and then released with a court appearance. And he argued at trial that his arrest was unlawful and violated Section 9 because it didn't comply with Section 495, Sub 2 of the Criminal Code. Now, that provision allows a peace officer to arrest a person um, for um, an an offense in certain circumstances, including um, if the offense is indictable. But because refusing to provide a breast sample is a hybrid offense, um, the... um, the code says that you can't arrest somebody for a hybrid offense unless um, it is uh, it is in the public interest uh, that there are no reasonable grounds to believe the person will um, uh, there are reasonable grounds to believe that a person would fail to attend court, or uh, that it's necessary to establish the identity of the person to secure uh, or preserve evidence, or to prevent the continuation or repetition of the offense or the commission of another offense. And that um, Mr. Veen said the public interest could have been satisfied without his arrest, so his arrest violated Section 9. Interesting because we've, since 2012, in BC, had this BC Supreme Court decision that was never appealed called Beckler, where the arrest without warrant for refusing to provide a sample, well, it was for failing the ESD and then the, yeah, the breath yeah. test, was found to be unlawful. I mean, the, the police, you would think, would have to explain one of those circumstances in there rather than just everybody else trying to figure out why they did it. Yes. You know, like there's a whole list of reasons, right? Yes. If the person didn't provide a driver's license and and you need to identify them, that's one thing. And so the court stayed the Mm. charge on the, on on the basis of section 24, one of the charter, um, that the officer ought to have known about limitations to his arrest powers and put his mind to it and failed to do so. Um, and yeah, he, uh, he lost on appeal. And the appeal basically dealt with the question of whether or not um, the decision to uh, arrest him was wrong. So um, the court made it clear in the appellate judgment that non-compliance with Section 495 sub 2 is not actually determinative of the Section 9 issue. So the arrest isn't arbitrary just because the officer fails to comply with Section 495 sub 2. The arrest has to be arbitrary on its own, and 495 sub 2 would have to not be complied with in order for it to be an, an, an arbitrary arrest. Which is odd. Very odd. I think. Uh-huh. I think it's odd. Hard to but reconcile. Is this a court of appeal, or is it This is Queen's the Alberta Bank? Court of Appeal. Huh. Yeah. So, King's Bench, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, the court, uh, the court says this interpretation, this is paragraph 60, this interpretation does not diminish a peace officer's legal duty to comply with 495 sub 2 
The language directs that a peace officer shall not arrest without a warrant uh, unless those conditions are met. This discretion is consistent with the overarching principle of restraint codified in the criminal code. However, the accused is denied the right to uh, raise non-compliance as a defense to an arrest which is deemed lawful. Um, so, it still is arguable um, as part of the transaction, but you would still have to have an otherwise unlawful arrest in order to get to that 495 um, sub 2 issue. Now, so the, the door is still open to say um, the, the, the Section 9 is, is breached. You just have to demonstrate, essentially, what the court is saying. You just have to demonstrate that the way in which the detention power is applied is done arbitrarily. And I think Mr. Veen probably could have got there if he'd framed the argument that way, that to say, you know, um, detaining somebody who put them in contact with counsel is arbitrary um, because the officer facilitated contact with counsel. So it's, it's, it's not dead in the water, um, but it well, is... I don't think it's consistent with BC. It's, it's, it's almost not consistent with BC, but it is uh, an interesting issue overall. So um, got to keep our eyes on that question. Okay, so let's talk about something else that makes me sad. Okay. <laughs> Since we're talking about sad things on the podcast this week, Paul. Can't win them all, Kyla, as the C- saying goes. C5, not the greatest. Um, uh, yeah. uh, everything makes me sad today, but uh, this decision out of Nova Scotia on my constitutional challenge to the saliva testing scheme, bit of a Pyrrhic victory, I will say. Um, the judge found that it did uh, violate Section 10B, which wasn't really a surprise. The no. Crown didn't really argue much about that. <laughs> so any ASD demand does as well. Yeah. 10B is, is suspended and it's only permissible pursuant to Section 1. Yeah. Yep, so ASD, uh, or or saliva testing, um, does violate Section 10B, does not violate Section 8. The judge uh, accepted that uh, the search is not that intrusive and that the amount of time it takes is just how long the machine takes and that that's not a problem. And uh, it's saved by Section 1 on the 10B violation, which, I mean... I knew it was going to be pretty hard to overcome. I think it. Uh, I think that there really feels like there's no test there when it comes to the legal test of what is intrusive. Yeah. So what the judge and in the said, end, it comes down to what the judge feels, which is um, you know the way we do things in Canadian law. Well, what the judge <sighs> said about the Section One violation is that you know even if cannabis impaired driving isn't as big of a concern as maybe people thought that it was going to be. And even if there's no clear evidence that cannabis-impaired driving is a sole or significant contributing factor to carnage on the highways, legislating about impaired driving, because there is evidence that cannabis can impair driving, is certainly a pressing and substantial legislative objective. Um, That as far as the sort of rational connection Um, doing something that uh, identifies people who have consumed cannabis products and are at or over a particular, uh, you know, saliva 
drug concentration correlated to a blood drug concentration is again rationally connected to achieving that objective. And the judge emphasized that, you know, you don't have to have perfection in these. There doesn't need to be a perfect method of getting cannabis impaired drivers off the road. This is what they've got now. And so even though there's SFSTs, it also doesn't have to be the only method. So that sucks. And then as far as proportionality, he relied on the fact that there really is no other method for quickly determining or, you know, efficiently determining who's driving at a particular blood drug concentration or who might potentially be impaired by cannabis. There's no uh, penalty that flows from the use of the device itself. Um, so it's um, proportional to the legislature or the parliament's objective. Well, the reality is the the sample that's obtained doesn't um, just allows the police to detain the person further for the sake of further investigation, essentially. <clears throat> in Nova Scotia. <laughs> in Nova Scotia, but not in British Columbia. Not that they're really using it in BC. And, well, you know, it, it does, but he does leave it's the also, door open. It's also easy to challenge the results. He does leave the door open, though, in the sense that if there was a decision that, or if there was a technology that was developed that could be adopted by government that was better at actually identifying impaired people, that perhaps this challenge could be brought again because it would no longer be meeting that Section 1 exemption. As the only game in town. As the only game in town. <clears throat> Which, you know, if we go back into what you and I talked about when cannabis legalization was happening on this podcast and what we talked about with many of the guests that came on the podcast at the time, we knew that the first person to get something into the hands of the police the people to be the only game in town were going to be the most successful people at dealing with, you know, cannabis impaired driving and who were going to make the big, big, big bucks. But honestly, like the suspicion that has arisen, like, first of all, they weren't widely bought as a result of the fact that people recognized there was problems with the technology, technology um, and false positives and such things. So they weren't widely purchased by the police. And then Cannabis legalization came out and we found out wah, wah, it's hardly a, an issue. People aren't, you know, as we <laughs> talked about at the beginning, people who are, uh, have used cannabis such to, the, uh, to such a point where they feel that they are affected by cannabis usually come to the conclusion that driving is too much work and therefore won't drive. And they're really careful drivers because they always think that they're more more impaired than they are in their own self-assessment. So, you know, that was um, studied before. I don't think anybody really believed it. And so what have we seen? Almost no cannabis impaired driving. So no wide uptake of these devices by the police. Mm -hmm. Because why? Why bother? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> the other thing is, you know, I thought that the decision kind of had like a thread running through it of a phrase that we often hear, good enough for government. It really does feel like this was sort of like a good enough for government decision. And, you know, apparently there's some legal truth to that. Well, uh, as you know, I'm cynical about the justice system and um, I do my best to, um, to stand by it. But the government gets to make the laws 
the government gets to pass the laws, and the courts generally are going to defer to the government if the government can establish that they did it for a reason. Um, and um, and uh, it really often comes down to, strangely, like the tests and so many of the legal tests that were existed when I started off as a lawyer yep. have been turfed and replaced with um, more <clears throat> how I feel tests. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> so as a consequence, um, you know, I just, uh, I would say that so many of the decisions in many respects, you can, you can make an argument and the judge makes an argument. Um, and um, I feel that they are in so many respects arbitrary, but you know, you've got to have laws and got to have some certainty and got to have, you know, in is, a society. Is what it is. Now, uh, we have only a very short time because you and I both have hearings in a matter of minutes. So I wanted to quickly get to the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. A surprising bestseller? The pinpoint method of cross-examination is catching on. Law firms and new litigators across Canada have caught on to cross-examination, the pinpoint method. Kyla Lee's straightforward handbook that teaches you effective cross-examination skills. All right, let's hear about it. Okay, so this is a uh, Northern California driver who was arrested for DUI after hit and run. Not ordinarily enough to get you featured as the ridiculous driver of the week. Wearing an ostrich costume or naked or... Nope. 13 years old. Oh, okay, all right. Well, that's pretty ridiculous. Impaired? Uh, DUI and hit and run, yeah. Oh, 13-year-old impaired by alcohol? Uh, yeah, they said, um, there was a 13-year-old girl, a 15-year-old passenger, at least not the 15-year-old drive, <laughs> um, that, Maybe uh, the 13-year-old's a really good driver. Yeah, the blood alcohol concentration was over 0.05, <sighs> which is the minor blood alcohol concentration in California, so if you're under 8, 21, you can't drive over 0.05, um, interesting. Minor transporting alcohol, hit and run, and trespassing, because she ran from the police and hid in somebody else's property. Well, uh, 13 years old, that's a bad day. Yep. That's, that's, <clears> that's like grade eight. Bad day, yeah. Got to go back to school next Just week. Being held, week. Uh, held in juvenile hall. Oh, my gosh. Yep. Or release the kid. We'll just, yeah. Oh, Where are the parents? Oh, my gosh. Um, well, that's a good one. Yep. Yeah. Not in Florida. Happened in California this time. Yep. And well, not Florida man. It's California gal. California child. That's what happens. Okay. Good. Well, there you go. Thank you, Kyla. Thank you, Paul. And if you have a driving law-related issue and you need to get in touch with us, you can find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com or uh, give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.